Hello, everyone. In this podcast, we will be discussing sensitive topics such as sexual assault. It's important to take care of yourself while listening. Some suggestions are listening while you're in a healthy headspace or knowing who you can reach out to if you become upset. Our 24-7 helpline for crisis calls based out of Central Florida is 407-500-HEAL. By contacting the national hotline at 1-800-656-4673, you can get support and learn about your local resources. There's always someone ready to help. Welcome to the Victim Service Center podcast. Here we sit down with professionals that serve survivors and victims of trauma or those who've experienced violence and have conversations about social issues. This week, we are talking about childhood sexual abuse. My name is Emily Mitchell. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the education coordinator at the Victim Service Center. With me today, I have Tracy Kelly. Tracy uses she, her pronouns and is a survivor of child sexual abuse from the ages of nine to 11 years old by a family member. Tracy withheld her story for most of her life because she was scared, but after having her own children, she now speaks to other parents about keeping their children safe and also to other victims about how to not only survive their abuse, but learn how to thrive in life. Tracy, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I also have joining me Anne Pimentel Kerr. Anne uses she, her pronouns and is the Children's Advocacy Center Specialist at the Children Advocacy Center in Central Florida. Anne has over 25 years experience working with children and families and in the social services child welfare arena. Her experience includes working with children and adults in psychiatric facilities, DCF, child abuse investigations, supervision, and many years as a child welfare trainer. So Anne, thank you as well for being here today. Thanks, Emily. I appreciate it very much. I'm really excited to have this really important discussion with both of you. As a really brief introduction, childhood sexual abuse is defined as any sexual act between an adult and a minor when one exerts power over the other and is much more common than I think we realize. According to Rain's website, every nine minutes, Child Protective Services substantiates or finds evidence for a claim of child sexual abuse. And in the fiscal year of 2016 alone, there's strong evidence that 57,329 children were victims of sexual abuse. As always, these are just reported numbers. Um, However, it highlights just how widespread and serious of an issue this is. That's why this week we're gonna be talking about childhood sexual abuse, the definition of it, some signs of a child experiencing sexual abuse, and ways that we can help survivors and victims of childhood sexual abuse. So with that, I'd like to start off our podcast with definition. So going off the definition that I provided in the intro, 
Um, sexual abuse can include forcing, coercing, or persuading a child to engage in any type of sexual act. So with that definition, Anne, are there any other types of sexual abuse that you would like to address? Yeah, thanks, Emily. Yeah, there are other types of um, sexual abuse as well that it's important that people understand in the definition. It can also include two minors when one minor exerts their power over another minor. It also can include non-contact um, acts, which people don't always get that. So some non-contact acts such as uh, exhibitionism or exposure to pornography, voyeurism, communicating in a sexual manner by phone or internet. Those are other things that do fall in the definition of sexual abuse. Thank you so much for um, bringing that up. I also wanted to ask now that you kind of brought up this idea of um, kind of like a digital more non-contact thing. Um, do you know if there has been kind of an increase in that lately due to like things like COVID and things like that? Yes, it has increased a lot. Unfortunately, um, the reporting is, has de decreased because there aren't that many eyes on the, the youth anymore outside of the home. So what COVID has done is force people to be in isolation, uh, which I call it just the approved isolation, which does allow for perpetrators or people with bad intentions with children to increase their sexual abuse activities and their grooming. So um, unfortunately, this situation over this last almost a year with COVID has put kids uh, more at risk for sexual abuse. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Tracy, I wanted to ask if you would be able to share a bit about your story of childhood sexual abuse. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. So um, I was sexually abused um, by a family member um, and I was nine years old when it started and he was 13. This actually happened in my home um, with my parents at home. Um, so I want to kind of say that as what Anne was talking about with COVID that we're all being trapped in the house um, that, you know, a lot of people think that these things happen outside of the home or, you know, someplace where the parents aren't even there. And my, my experience was I was at my own home, my parents were there, um, and it was done by a family member, so somebody I knew. It lasted for about two years until I was 11. Um, luckily, my family, we moved away from the area, um, so I was able to kind of get away from him. Uh, so that, that really, that really helped me. Uh, I did not disclose, uh, when it happened to me, I didn't tell my parents, I didn't have that kind of relationship with my parents at the time that I could talk to them about these kinds of things. Uh, and it also, this was uh, a long time ago cause I'm old. Um, so this was, you know, back in the day where these things weren't talked about out in the open, like they are more prevalent now. So I kept it a secret. I kept it hidden. And I suffered because of that. I suffered a lot of uh, depression and anxiety and a lot of self-esteem issues and a lot of different things because I did not disclose and because I did not tell it affected me throughout my childhood and my life. And I began using alcohol at a, a young age to try to hide my feelings and to try to hide who I was. Um, I did not show a lot of signs and symptoms outwardly. Um, I tried to keep them hidden as much as possible. So when I moved away from, you know, the area at the age of 11, I was able to get away from my abuser at the time. I never disclosed my um, abuse to my parents at the time because 
uh, we just didn't have that relationship. And back then, uh, this was not disclosed as much as it is today. Um, we just didn't really talk about those things. And those things weren't, you know, they were kind of frowned upon. Um, and that nobody really wanted to know that they were actually happening. So um, I didn't disclose until I was about 21. And at the time of 21, I was dating a uh, abusive uh, alcoholic boyfriend at the time and um, kind of was in a situation where I just didn't know where to turn to next. And I tried to commit suicide. And I think a lot of it stemmed from hiding the abuse for so many years, hiding who I was and what I was feeling and thinking. And it was then that I was able to disclose to my parents uh, about the abuse and what had happened to me. Unfortunately, when I disclosed, um, it wasn't a great experience for me. Um, my parents didn't really know exactly how to handle things. Um, I don't fault them for that. I fault the times and not being able, the stigma surrounding everything. Um, but I didn't really try to get through my issues until... I met my husband um, and when we started dating and I disclosed kind of what happened to me to him and he really kind of showed me that true emotion and that true love of he showed me like that it wasn't my fault that it wasn't you know make me something was bad with me um, you know he showed that he still loved me and cared for me no matter what happened to me. Um, and that was like a first step for me it was getting through it and then it really was after I had my kids and starting to see my kids grow and seeing how innocent and pure and just how joyful they are made me realize that, you know, I was a kid myself and I really, you know, a lot of these, I held a lot of guilt and shame and I thought a lot of it was my fault and I did something wrong. And it really wasn't until I saw how my kids were that, you know, these are just innocent, sweet little kids. And, and they, you know, I didn't, it wasn't my fault and it wasn't something that I did. And then I vowed that I wanted to help myself get over everything that I had been through, but then also help, you know, make sure I protect my kids and I wanted to uh, help other kids. So no kid had to go through this like I did. No, no child had to feel the way that I had to feel. And that's really when I started kind of speaking out and talking to other parents and, and other kids about, you know, this, this situation and how to prevent things like this from happening. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Tracy. It's really, really powerful. Um, and it really shows the effects and, and damage that childhood sexual abuse can have on someone. And at the same time, how we can be great supporters for people in our lives as well. I love um, you sharing that story with you and your husband. And I also appreciate and want to uplift the the idea of that it, it really is not your fault um, and I hope that everyone's listening that um, that they really can feel that as well especially because um, I think that that shame and guilt that you were talking about uh, while sharing your story is definitely one that a lot of survivors can feel um, with sexual assault and, and things like sexual abuse. So I'm really glad that um, we're able to uplift the fact that, yeah, it was definitely not your fault um, and it's never the, the victim's fault. With that, uh, and just to kind of shift the, the conversation just a little bit, um, I wanted to talk about some signs and symptoms that a child is experiencing sexual abuse. So there are there are a lot of signs and symptoms of, that surround abuse. Unfortunately, 
sometimes sometimes they're they're internal signs, you know, and Tracy touched on that with her story as well. So they're not overt. It's not like someone's going to know, you know, that, oh, she's exhibiting signs of sexual abuse because a lot of trauma um, or a lot of the behaviors could be a sign of any trauma. Uh, and it's not spe- specific to sexual abuse, but some of them are emotional and behavior signs. They're very common in children. Um, they can go from being too perfect behaviors or being withdrawn, fearful, depressed, um, anger that's unexplained. That's not the typical or the norm for that child to behave that way or rebellion. So it's kind of, if you think of it on a spectrum, if, if a child is usually, you know, a uh, happy-go-lucky extrovert child, and now they're behaving kind of on the other end of the spectrum and you have no idea why, um, a lot of times people think, oh, they're just misbehaving or they're, they're just going through a phase. But really, it could be an indicator that something's happened. Or if a child is usually withdrawn or kind of more introverted and that's their norm, but now they're rebellious and they're acting out and they're um, now people are thinking, oh, they're being oppositional when that true truly could be an indicator as well. Um, so there are other signs. There are some physical signs, but those aren't the norm that you would see. But some physical signs could, you know, of course, include um, bruising or bleeding or redness or or, or bumps or, or sexually transmitted diseases um, or, you know, things like that um, or, or, you know, anything abnormal for that particular age group physically. But that is not the norm that people will see. People will uh, generally see indicators. And it, uh, uh, that are not so so outwardly known. Now, a child sometimes could um, have a lot of um, uh, physical ailments, and I put those in air quotes um, because they're not really physical ailments. They could be anxiety that translates to headaches or to stomach aches or um, feeling ill, but it's really more the trauma that's causing them to feel that way. So these are all some indicators that people need to look for and really know your child. Is this normal for my child? And have a lot of conversation to to try and draw that information out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for breaking all that down. Um, I like that you brought up that it, it depends on the child, right? It Seeing these severe changes is kind of that sign. Um, and yeah, it's just that, that open dialogue that you can have is, hey, I noticed you know, you're not going to soccer practice at all. And you used to go all the time. Is everything okay? And yeah, when I do my trainings, I do like to bring up that this doesn't mean that they're going through childhood sexual abuse, This, but it could be something. And right. so why not kind of start having that conversation and open it up and see how, you know, what is it so that we can try to address it and help support that child? Yeah, Emily, I do also want to say that um, a lot of youth, when they do get uh, uh, sexually abused, um, and and this was in Tracy's story, Tracy used drugs and alcohol, correct, Tracy? Um, So drugs and alcohol, or a lot of times they um, might have an eating disorder. Um, And these are all ways of trying to cope or survive with that particular trauma. So sometimes when we look at kids who are using drugs, for example, we look at them, oh, they're making bad choices or they fell in with the wrong crowd, when really there might be a very big ugly reality for them that they are truly just trying to survive and to cope. And at the time, that's helping them. 
At the time, that is something that is helping them through that particular trauma. So we need to look beyond and beyond and and past the use of the drugs. But why are they using? What is it that happened to them that could cause the use? Um, it's not every child who gets into drugs and alcohol that is has been traumatized or sexually abused, but more than we think. Um, we we often you know disregard what happened versus the behavior that they're doing now. And then we get upset and we get angry with their decisions um, without really looking at the underlying cause. Sure. Yeah, that's such a great point to bring up, um, kind of looking at it holistically instead of just like little pockets of, of information, but seeing like, you know, what what did happen? And I appreciate you say what happened um, instead of you know, a lot of times when we talk about things like sexual assault and sexual abuse, survivors a lot of times can feel like, what's wrong with me? But instead, it should be what happened to me, right? Absolutely, and yes. Delving into it that way. Um, Tracy, I wanted to ask you and talk a little bit more about your story because it's so, so powerful. And, you know, thank you for all that you do for survivors of sexual abuse and violence prevention education. Um, I know that you often go out and do public speaking, and recently you were actually on our victim blaming panel um, where you referenced the shame survivors of sexual abuse can feel, and you brought it up today. Um, I wanted to see if you would be able to touch on those feelings of shame or any other emotions that you processed and how they possibly created that barrier to disclosing that you were mentioning. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, the signs of the symptoms of kids, because it it kind of goes into that. When you're a kid, you know, you're you're taught by your parents what's right and what's wrong. And I knew what I was doing was wrong. Um, and so that, you know, and I grew up in a very Southern household and it was, you know, you do what your parents tell you to do and you don't do the wrong things, you know, because you know you're going to get punished if you do something wrong. So I think that was a big part of it was, we knew, you know, I knew my parents were going to punish me. I did something wrong. And I was, so I got, I was scared, um, you know, and then it was also, I was afraid and I was, um, I was very, uh, I felt shame, you know, and I felt guilt and I felt like there was something wrong with me and that um, I had done something just terrible and awful. And it's the guilt of everything that, you know, that's why I didn't disclose. That's why I didn't tell anybody because, you know, you feel like it's your fault. You feel like you're, you're this horrible person that did this horrible wrong thing. And, and, and because you, you feel this way about yourself and what happened to you that it, it stems and goes into all kinds of different things where your self-esteem is, is, you know, very low. And we talk about, you know, signs and symptoms. And when you're a victim of, of this kind of thing, you really, you just want to feel like you're normal. You really, you don't feel normal. You don't feel like you're a normal person anymore. So you try and attempt to do everything to, to feel and to look like a normal person. So I tried to hide, you know, my pain and my sadness from, you know, my parents and my friends because I didn't want to be seen as something different. I wanted to be just like everybody else. And, and I think that was a hard thing for a lot of kids who are, who are victims of you just want to be viewed as somebody normal and you don't want this happen to happen to you. And so, you know, you, you try to cover it and, you know, Anne mentioned, 
you know, anorexia and eating disorders. I went through that and I went through all kinds of things just to try to find something that I could, you know, just hide the pain and cover it up. Um, and I think the other part of it is you don't want to tell anybody because you're afraid of how they're going to view you. Like, I, I was so scared of how people would see me. And, and I've talked to so many people who are also victims. And that is their biggest thing is they're scared of how people are going to see them. And like I mentioned, my husband, when he, when I told him about things that had happened to me, you know, he, I saw the, just the, he would cry and he just, he just felt for me. And he said, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And I still love you. And I still think you're an amazing person. And it really made me see of like, okay, maybe I don't have to be viewed as this person. I don't have to be, you know, viewed as this thing or that thing. Um, and so that kind of helps, but it's a barrier that victims have to go through the stigma that kind of surrounds this whole thing of it's something that, you know, happened to you and you have all of this guilt and the shame and it's really hard to get over that. Um, and to kind of come out and say, this is, this is something I went through, um, but it doesn't define who I am. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I, I hear that, um, really supporters in our lives and being able to process those emotions and, and, and talking about how it doesn't define you has really, it seems like it really helped you, um, process all of those emotions that again, you know, society puts on victims, unfortunately of, you know, um, that the victim blaming mentality really that, that we live in the society, you know, that rape culture that we live in of, um, this idea that what happens to someone, it's their fault, which absolutely it isn't. So it must be very incredibly difficult to process those emotions. And I'm really glad that you were able to have such great supporters in your life. And thank you for sharing that, that journey with us. And I, you know, talking a little bit about different aspects of sexual abuse, I did read a statistic somewhere that about 90% of sexual abuse actually involves a perpetrator that is known to the family. Um, so could you speak to the complexities of these relationships and how they can affect survivors? Sure, absolutely. Um, and I just want to go back to Tracy for a second. Tracy, your story is so um, compelling because you are talking about everything that victims need to know everything um, as far as the feelings and the guilt and what you went through and um, how you felt shame and and all of that. <clears throat> and I commend you for sharing your story. I commend your husband for understanding what's hap what happened to you and just being such a supporter. And, and like Emily mentioned, it's being that one person, that supportive person to really wrap you up in, in their arms and just love you regardless of what happened to you so that you can help work through this issue. So I am humbled by your story and, and I hope that those who are gonna hear this will be empowered um, by you sharing your story. And really you're going through all of everything that we try and educate um, people on, um, but it's, it's so much more impactful coming from somebody who went through it. And I'm sorry that you went through this. It, sucks that you went through this. Um, 
However, for you to be able to share this and help others is incredibly empowering and incredibly um, powerful. So for that, I thank you. Thank you very oh, yeah. much. Thank you so much, Anne. That's very sweet. Um, so back to the, the you know, perpetrators coming from people that we know. Yes, your statistic, Emily, is correct. 90% of kids who are victims of sexual abuse know their abuser. And Tracy shared that already. She, it was a family friend um, or a member of the family um, that abused yeah. Tracy. So 90% is someone that the family knows. So let me break down those statistics just a little bit more. So 30% of children who are sexually abused are abused by a family member. 60% is, is are abused by someone that the family trusts. So that's where the 90% comes from. So look, big picture, 90%. So if any of us um, think about it, we invite family and friends to our homes all the time, right? People that we trust are coming into our house. Let me give you another statistic as well. So 40% of children who are sexually abused are abused by older or more powerful children. Um, and then 10% are, are uh, or less of children who are sexually abused are abused by a stranger. So when we teach our kids about stranger danger, it's important. Do not get me wrong. But when we're talking about these statistics, it's the it's those that the family trusts. Um, and of course, in, in Tracy's case and in numerous other cases, it's people that the family knows, that the family trusts that have welcomed into their household because, you know, we all have people that we love uh, that we invite into our house that are just like family, even if it's not blood relatives, right? So uh, where those statistics are coming from is um, that's that's where a lot of the, the abuse is happening, right? So if the abuse is happening inside your own home, we need to be more aware, more vigilant, more diligent in really understanding what's happening. And most of the uh, sexual abuse, of course, is happening in isolated one-on-one -on -one situations. So the parents could be home and it could be happening in another part of the house and the parents are trusting that things are fine, the kids are fine, um, or Uncle Joe, and I put that in air quotes, Uncle Joe is just hanging out with the kids, he's fine. And these are some things that we need to truly be aware of. And that's where the grooming comes in. And I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But the, the grooming piece is is huge. But of course, if if the child is being groomed, so is the parent. So is the whole family. So is the whole rest of the community within that household uh, being groomed as well to for this person to be trusted. Um, so it, so it's 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 just so vast. Um, people will often tell me, well, I would never invite someone in my house who's who's a sexual abuser. Well, of course not. Who would, you know, who would invite that person? But that person who is doing the abusing knows very well how to keep it hidden, how to keep the child from not talking, how to groom, and even um, make the child feel like, one, it is normal, two, it might be their fault, or three, um, the, you know, the your parents will be mad, so you can't tell, and we'll talk probably more about that as well. So there's such a big picture here when we're talking about um uh, 90%. The 90% is with someone that the family knows. And and to kind of go along with that and exactly what you're saying with, you know, with me, it was a family member. It was within my household. It was while my parents were home. So I do, when I speak to other parents, you know, I, I you know, specifically tell them, I'm like, it happened when he was spending the night at the house. You know, he was a family member. He 
was like you said, trusted. My parents had, you know, would not have even expected it. And, and so I try to tell parents all the time, like you mentioned, and stranger danger. Yeah. Like we've talked, we've heard that since I was a kid um, about stranger danger, but you know, that's one thing that kids need to be looked out for, but you also have to talk to these kids about this situation and what to do if this arises that somebody that they know because they're going to have a harder time standing up to somebody that they know and that they supposedly are trusted and loved within a family. They're going to have a harder time saying no to these people. And like you mentioned, grooming, and we'll talk about that too. But, you know, it, it's, it's, this happens within the home by a trusted companion, about, by a trusted somebody in the house. And it, that's the scary part about it. And that's what I try to, um, you know, inflict on parents is, you know, you think, it, it can happen at any time and it can happen at anywhere. So to be very cautious about that. Right. I really appreciate you both kind of breaking down this myth that, that surrounds sexual abuse. And I think that this myth actually kind of helps prop up and, and put people at risk for things like childhood sexual abuse. So it's a really important myth to break down. Um, and yeah, it, perfectly um, segues into my other question, which can be answered by either or both of you. Um, I have heard a lot um, recently uh, the term grooming, especially in pop culture, actually. So what exactly is grooming and how does it put children at risk for things like sexual abuse? So uh, I can give you some information, you know, from the educational perspective on grooming, but I'm sure Tracy can talk talk about how perhaps she was groomed, but um, grooming behaviors, they, you know, they include special attention or outings and um, gifts. And I'm talking from an adult, right? So from an adult, you know, special attention to that one kid, you know, the, the uncle has the favorite niece. And please don't misinterpret that there are some wonderful uncles out there who truly do love their nieces and nephews. And, and you know what? Let, let me back up a little bit. Um, sexual abuse and grooming can happen from a male and a female. There's male and female perpetrators. So I want to make sure that we're clear on that. The majority, of course, are male. So that's why, you know, I typically go to Uncle Joe. But females can be perpetrators as well. And we also need to be aware of that. Um, other grooming behaviors are isolating the child from others. Um, let's go get some ice cream. It's, you know, it's let's go on a date. Let's go get some ice cream. And remember, this is somebody that the family trusts and is OK with that child going to get ice cream. Majority of time, it's fine. But then there are some families or some, you know, uh, perpetrators who use that opportunity as the grooming technique. Um, filling the child's unmet needs, like the child, for example, um, is doesn't feel loved by dad or dad's not in the picture or something of that nature. And that need is met by fulfilling that, let's say, father figure or male role model. Um, and males and females are uh, victims as well. So we want to make sure that we are um, making you know making sure that people understand that too that it's not only females that are victims males are victims too of this same abuse um filling the needs and the roles within the family so mom or dad's working all the time or mom's working all the time somebody else is coming in to fill that need to oh i'll i'll come over and i'll babysit or i'll come over and i will cook dinner, or I'll take the kids off your hands for a little bit while you rest or something of that nature. So filling that un unmet need within the family. Um, treating the child as if they are older. So, you know, treating the child as if they are maybe a teen versus, uh, you know, a youth. But sometimes, 
little ones or young ones or preteens like that feeling. Oh, he's treating me like a big girl, right? So sometimes that's part of the grooming behavior as well. So the grooming just gradually crosses over and crosses over the physical boundaries, um, becomes increasingly intimate, increasingly sexual. And they use, of course, secrecy, blame, threats or to maintain control. Um, the, you know, mom or dad will be so mad at you or um, they won't let me see you anymore or I'll go to jail or I mean, there's a variety of reasons that children don't tell, and it's part of the grooming process. Um, and that's where children get blamed or youth get blamed. Why didn't you tell me? You should have told me. You would have told me if this had happened. And I really want to make it clear that youth will not tell you. They will not tell you these things all the time or majority of time, actually. And and Tracy has already shared that in her story. She did not um, disclose until she was an adult. There are adults now who still have never disclosed their childhood sexual abuse because they are still living with that shame and blame and um, feeling dirty and feeling like it was their fault. And let's just make it clear, and I, I know that Emily, you are, and Tracy, you are as well, but it is not the victim's fault. It is not absolutely, no matter what you were told by that perpetrator, you did nothing to lead this person on. That person knew better. That person um, knew they were crossing a boundary and they, uh, they crossed that boundary and they did this to you. So, so if anyone's listening, you are not the fault by any means, regardless of what you have been told in the past. Yeah. And I can talk, comment about the grooming, about the specific grooming that was done to me, um, by this family member is, you know, you talked about gifts and things like that. Like I, I remember he would give, uh, give me like video games or, you know, would let me like, he'd be like, well, I'll let you play my video game, you know, when you come over or, you know, like he, he did try to, you know, use the manipulation and the gifts kind of thing for on me. And, and he made me feel like, well, you're this special person that you're helping me and, you know, you're doing this for me. So it was a lot of manipulation. It was a lot of talking. And, and of course, it was after the fact of, you know, after things would happen, he would say, you can't tell anybody because we would get into trouble. You know, you know, this is wrong. You did this too. So it was almost like he would manipulate me to think that I had a part in it, like that this was me as well. Um, so that kind of goes back to you feel the, the guilt and the shame that you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. And I, I guess I'm this bad person now. So it is my fault. And so I did not disclose because of this manipulation that he put on onto me of, you know, that it was my fault that I did this too. So, you know, and like I said, growing up in that Southern household and, you know, you listen to your parents and you do what they say, um, you know, otherwise you're going to be in trouble. You know, you had that fear. You know, you had that fear. And I, I think now as a parent, um, I, I tell my kids that, you know, there's nothing you can say to me that I'm going to get angry with you, that I'm going to be mad at you. You know, like I might be upset at your decision and I might be, uh, you know, that there's going to might be a consequence to your decision, but I will never, never stop loving you or I will never be mad at you for something that happened. Like, you know, that's just one of the things I've made sure to talk to my kids about is, you know, trying to combat that grooming thing and let them know, like, 
don't let people, you know, give you gifts if, you know, things like that are happening. If somebody's telling you, hey, I'll give you this if you come do this, you know, and that manipulation, I make sure, you know, I tell my, you know, my kids like all the time, don't get sucked into that, you know, don't, don't, you know, you need to come talk to me if you're feeling uncomfortable about a situation. And, and I think that's the biggest thing that we have to have with our kids is you have to have that open conversation with them. They have to be able to feel like they can come and talk to you and that they won't be blamed for this. Um, and, and that's a big thing is, is, you know, and I tell my kids all the time, like, even if you make a bad decision, it's okay. You know, like we're, we're allowed to make mistakes. It doesn't make that make you a bad person. Um, and so, you, you know, it's a lot of, uh, and that's, it goes back to the stigma that I want to break of, you know, that people blaming the victim, like, why did you do that? You knew it, you know, it was wrong, you know, that you should have said no, or, you know, and you, you can't expect kids who are innocent, who are sweet, who don't understand anything to, you know, make these big decisions at the time. And it's not fair. And so, you know, grooming, a lot of times people are like, Oh, I, I can't imagine that happening. But it can happen from a family member, it can happen from a babysitter. And Anne, you mentioned it doesn't, it's not just males we're talking about. This is females too. You know, if you have an older babysitter, you know, who's there in the house, you know, watching your kids, she could be grooming them. You know, she can be manipulating. You'll get in trouble if you don't do what I say. You know, you're going to, you know, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to tell your parents and I'm going to do this or I'll punish, you know, so it happens all the time. It happens more than it, it, and then not, and especially if kids don't uh, recognize it. And they don't know what to do if they get into a situation like that. Thanks, Tracy. I want to I want to touch on something as well. Um, going off of what Tracy was saying is, um, you know, so groom. We, we're talking about grooming, right? Um, now, kids are grow when they're growing up. There's you know there's changes in their bodies and there's um, you know changes going on within and and it's confusing. We all know that when you're young, preteen and and going into your teens or even you know younger. So people who groom children, um, and this isn't all inclusive, but people who, who groom children, they know, you know, sometimes what they're doing actually doesn't feel bad. So we need to remember to teach our children not to use good touch, bad touch, because a bad touch might not feel bad. It might feel good or might feel okay. This can't be all bad if it doesn't feel bad. So so an inappropriate touch, we need to teach kids what the inappropriate touch is, not what a bad touch is because th that's confusing. So we need to change that terminology and teach them about you know, where's private, what private parts are. And we need to make sure we're using the right language for um, vagina and for penis. We need to make sure that we are using that. So there's no um, uh, wondering, well, what, what's that child talking about if they're talking about, you know, their cookie or, you know, something that it's a pet name for their body parts. So um, a lot of times the, the groomer or the, the perpetrator will say, well, you know, this feels good for you, so you must be a willing participant. And that is another manipulation. You know, children don't understand all the time how their bodies are going to react to something. And just because you are re reacting in a physical way doesn't mean that you are a willing participant. 
You know what I mean? So it's really important that we um, identify that with kids as well and, and really talk to our kids early and often about um, uh, sexual um, progression within their body. You know, so you start off with the young books and you just uh, progress to the next level, next level. And it's constant talking and make it a constant part of your conversation within your household so that it is open. Right. Yes. Having that open conversation with your kids. And I remember I started going to therapy um, to deal with my issues because my kids were young and I wanted to know how to protect them. And I remember going to a therapist and saying, this is what happened to me as a kid. How do I prevent my kids? from it happening to my kids. And that's really how it started of me going into a therapy and actually trying to get over everything that happened to me um, is I had this fear of how do I get protect my kids? And it began of, you know, talking to them about their body parts. It began in the bathtub where, you know, you, we would play the, you know, your, where's your nose, point to your ears, where's your eyes, you know, and, and where's your penis and where's your, you know, like, cause I would want to make sure they knew all of their body parts. And, you know, and as they progress, as, as you said, as they grow up and mature and, you know, okay, now this part that your underwear covers, you know, nobody's allowed to touch that, you know, and this and that. And, you know, and we talked about it, like, okay, sometimes doctors are going to be, they're going to have to touch it because it isn't a part of your body and they have to make sure that it's okay, but this is a good touch and this is a bad touch. And I, and I know you, and you talked about this, like, it's very confusing for kids because, Yes, when there is a touching down there, when you have a sensation, you it's a very confusing thing because you're like, I know this is bad, but it feels good. How do I differentiate between the two? And and it really kind of affected me going into, you know, my dating life and being with with men is is how I, it would it was a very hard thing because I was like, wait, is this a good touch or a bad touch? but I'm feeling this way. Should I be feeling this way? And it was a very confusing time. Um, so yes, yeah, so for sure, talking to your kids about, you know, that it, we, it, we still are human. We still are going to have sensations. Things still feel good to us and it's okay. You know, those things should feel okay and good to us if it's done in a proper way, if it's done in a way that, you know, we are accepting willing participants in it. So I think having that conversation is making sure, you know, you're talking to your kids, you know, don't give these, you know, uh, pet names for, you know, their, their parts or body parts, because you want them to know that these are the true names. You know, my kids have said, you know, penis and vagina for years and, and, and they, they, they say it all the time and, and it's okay. It's an okay word. It's not a, it's not a secretive word that should be hushed or not said at all. Um, so that's, that's an important thing to, to note as well. Absolutely. Those are also all great points. So the other thing that I wanted to say, and this really goes off of what Tracy was saying, um, in her story is that she didn't, Tracy, you didn't feel comfortable talking to your parents because this wasn't something that you talked about openly, you know, and, and a lot of the other feelings that you had as well. What I really want to encourage is that, you know, of course, what Tracy was just saying about talking to your kids um, about their body parts. Absolutely. That is the absolute start um, early and often, which is what Tracy is doing right now, which is fantastic. You know, and learning some of the ways that you can prevent this happening uh, for your kids. The other thing I would like to encourage folks, too, is um, 
you know, no child wants to disappoint their parent, you know? So, um, as a lot of times when I do particular trainings, folks will just sit back and say, oh, my kids will tell me anything. My kids will tell me everything. So I don't have to worry. But here's what I really want to encourage folks is you might have a great relationship with your child and that is fantastic, but doesn't mean that they're going to come and tell you when something like this happens. So um, my encouragement, of course, is to continue that conversation, that dialogue often, but be very careful in thinking that you don't have to worry because your child will come and talk to them. So I do encourage that you um, identify with your child who who they feel is another safe adult, whether it be um, you know a family, a trusted family member, somebody, an aunt, an uncle, um, you know. Uh, older brothers, whoever that person is, a teacher, whoever that trusted adult is, that they have someone that they can go to because they might need that buffer before coming to mom and dad because they are terrified of disappointing mom, terrified of disappointing dad, terrified of um, what their, their perpetrator, their groomer is telling them will happen because that is very believable to a child. A child will believe that dad's going to go to jail or that um, um, that they will go to jail because sometimes they, they don't want the, per- the perpetrator necessarily to go to jail. They just want the stuff to stop. They, you know, they just want it to stop. They might even like the perpetrator. And I know this is very confusing, but, you know, they, they like the, the, the Uncle Joe in air quotes, the Uncle Joe, but they don't like what they're doing to them in private. They just want it to stop. So it's not always about someone going to to jail. Now, let me clarify that. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be consequences and accountability. Um, You know, and if this is something that they're doing to one child, chances are it's happening to another child. So jail might be the right opportunity or, or right option for that person. But really, it's important that parents understand the mindset of a child as they're getting, as they're going through this. It's not an automatic that I'm going to tell mom and dad because they're in it and they don't know how to get out of it. So if they identify another safe person, the parents and the child, so it might be um, something like, so so Emily, if something happens and I'm not here right away, or if something happens, or if you need someone to talk to, who do you feel the most comfortable talking to? So I'm the parents shouldn't be identifying the person. The parent and the child should be identifying the person, you know, and use a safe word or, or something like that. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw that out as well, as far as, you know, don't assume that your child will tell you everything because you have this great open relationship, which I think is great that you have that open relationship, but it does not mean that they are going to automatically tell you something. That's true. And I, and I just to kind of say that, like I, like I mentioned, I've talked to my kids all the time about this, you know, and, and I talk to them and, you know, we, we are try to be a very, my husband and I try to be a very, you know, let's have conversations, let's talk, let's, you know, you know, it's okay, you can tell us. And, and even though we might feel like, oh, they could tell us anything, or they do, I probably, you know, I know they still don't tell us everything. I'm sure there's some things at school that they don't tell us. And, and it'll happen like months later, all of a sudden, they'll be like, oh, yeah, this happened. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say anything then? And they're like, I don't know. And da, 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 da. And so, you know, you have to kind of check in with your kids a lot and often. And right. you have to find that bonding time. And 
And I want to say for parents out there who are listening of how do I talk to my children? What do I say? You know, there are resources out there that you can get help on how to talk to your kids or what to say to your kids. But the most important thing is just to, you know, try to start having that conversation with them early on and often. And, and, you know, you keep talking to them and no matter if it's a little thing or a huge thing, react the same way, you know, don't get like, don't for a little thing be like, Oh, well, never mind. Okay, it's fine. And then a huge thing, you blow it out of proportion. Because then the child is going to think, well, I can't, I can only tell them the small things, because the big things, they, I, that's too much. So, you know, you have to, as a parent, you know, you have to make sure that you're, you're listening and responding to your child, you know, in a way that you're listening to all of it, the, the bad, the good, the little, the small, the everything, um, and, and, and to keep that conversation going between all of you. Such a great point. Such a great point, Tracy. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm learning so much from both of you. And and what I'm hearing a lot is just, um, especially with survivors of childhood sexual abuse, it seems like there's this barrier to disclosing. I'm hearing a lot of like fear of getting in trouble, um, the secrecy and, and groomers using that, the shame, um, how you'll be seen if you do disclose those kinds of things. So I wanted to ask you, Tracy, you know, how can harboring these experiences affect a survivor and what motivates you to share your story? So that's a good one. I, I talk a lot about that. Um, and I, I have come from, I, I think I've been in some dark places in my life because of my experiences, because of uh, hiding from them be- because I, I kept everything in. Um, I suffered from anxiety and depression and low self-esteem, and I never felt that I was worthy of love. And I think that was one of the biggest things that hurt me growing up is I just never thought that I was worthy of someone loving me or caring for me um, because of this that happened to me. Um, and I think, you know, I, 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 I drank at an early age and I, and I tried not to be who I was because I felt like the person that I was, was not good enough, was, was this horrible, uh, bad person who did these bad things. And I always felt like I had this deep, dark secret. And if anybody knew my secret, then they would truly know what kind of person I was. And I never wanted anybody to know that. So I never tried to be myself. You know, I always try to be somebody different and, you know, not let people know what I was truly feeling. And, and that led to, um, you know, a lot of depression that led to, you know, to some, you know, suicidal thoughts. And, um, it, I think I missed out on a lot because of, of having those feelings of not, I didn't want to go on experiences and have good things happen to me because I just felt like I wasn't deserving of them, you know, and I was always constantly questioning why, why me? Um, and, and it was just a hard thing to kind of get over, um, and to realize that just because this thing happened to me doesn't define who I am just because this, this happened, um, that I had no control over. It doesn't, doesn't define like what, what I'm going to be. And so I, I want to talk about it. And I, and once I started talking about it and sharing my story, it kind of, empowered me more to say that, you know, every time I speak and I share my stories, and especially if I'm sharing with other, you know, victims and survivors, 
you know, we all are like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. And it, and it makes me feel like I'm not alone, that I, I'm not the only one that feels like this and that all victims have that feelings of the same thing of the guilt and the shame and the blame. And, and, you know, knowing that you're not alone in these feelings, knowing that you can help other people um, when you talk about your feelings, uh, that's why I share my story. That's why I want to help others is because I want other people to not have to go through what I went through as far as all those years of depression and suicide and thinking of I, I didn't belong or I didn't deserve anything. And I want other people to see like, you were a victim and, and, and you got through it. You survived that. So now let's take it and, and pay it forward. Let's, let's do something positive with it. Let's, let's thrive through our life and build other people up and help other people realize that things that happen to you doesn't define you. It, it, it helps you just become who you are and you can become a stronger person because of it. Thank you so much, Tracy, for all that you do um, for survivors of sexual abuse um, and for the community in general. Um, and thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, going back to kind of those long-term effects for survivors of trauma, you know, and research has shown that there are, you know, lasting effects on our mental and physical health um, if we've experienced traumatic events. So can you speak to common effects sexual abuse can have on someone in the long term? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I just want to reiterate some of what Tracy said. And she's, she's talked about, you know, some of the, the effects that it's had on your um, on your self, self-esteem, on your overall well-being. And, and because of this, it, it changes who you think you are changes your perspective on you know who you are and if you you don't feel worthy if you don't feel loved and and you know you feel like you know this is this is who I am now um it changes your outlook on life it changes your outlook on you know where your hope lies you know and for Tracy and for a lot of other folks I'm sure that are listening to this this podcast um without that disclosure or without that moving forward, without that hope, you're, you can get really stuck in, in what has happened to you because you think this is who you are. But like Tracy said, she, once she, um, uh, disclosed and, and started to share her story and started, not everyone has to share their story, um, with, you know, on this public forum. However, you can see with Tracy, this is helping one, a healing for her, but healing for others as well, who recognize that they're not by themselves. They're not alone in this. This is, this happens and it stinks that it happens, but it does happen. You are not alone. You're not the only one that this has happened to. So talking about it does help. Now, going back to um, what you said about traumatic events, and we call them adverse childhood experiences, and this is one of those adverse childhood experiences being sexually abused, and it's 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 horrifying. It changes the perspective of a person's mind and their body. So there are a lot of long-term outcomes. So think of um, physical and mental health, right? So physical and mental health is it, it changes how you view things. For one, your mental health, your there could be depression, and Tracy talked about that. Um, it could be low self-esteem. She talked about that. Um, suicide attempts. She talked about that. There are kids out there who are cutting. Um, 
as a way of trying to um, cope. And it, it, a lot of times people think that, oh, they're just trying, they're just seeking attention. Well, they might be seeking attention because they need to get something off their chest. They need to talk about something. So it's not just an attention-seeking behavior. It's behavior for a reason. Um, and, and we don't always look at that. And then, you know, the physical body as well. So if you're suppressing these types of emotions um, and, and you have depression and you have other um, anxieties, there's headaches, there's stomach aches, there's um, uh, physical ailments that are harbored in your body that sometimes you don't even understand where they're coming from. I don't know why I feel this way, but a lot of that stress and trauma is still in your body. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you brought up the adverse childhood um, experiences. Um, so I wanted to ask a little bit about, um, there's this survey, the ACEs survey. Um, where can someone take this if they're interested? Um, and if you can you explain a little bit about the ACEs survey and what recommendations as far as safety do you have before someone takes the ACEs survey if they're interested? Yeah, absolutely. And and the ACE the ACE study, um, uh, I think it's called Find Your ACE Score, and you can simply Google that and it'll come right up. Um, but here's what I want to say about finding your ACE score. Uh, it's, a, it's a great survey. It was done over 20 years ago um, by Kaiser Permanente. It, ha- it was over a study done with over 17,000 uh, people. And the, the scores on the ACE study back then um, indicate that over 34%, I believe, had an ACE score of four or more. So on that ACE score, um, and these were adults, Um, mostly educated adults that talked about their childhood adversity. So there's 10 questions and they include um, sexual abuse. Were you sexually abused as a child? So it's all up until you're 18 years old. Sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, uh, domestic violence is, is a question on there. If a parent was incarcerated was on was on there. Um, and it's broken out into a couple of different segments. But there's 10 questions. And simply what you do is if it happened to you, then you just check yes, or you get a score of one. If there's another one, you get a score of two, etc. all the way down. It's not, don't overthink it. Well, yeah, it happened, but it didn't have an impact. But it happened. So it's an A score one to one through 10. So I, what I want to tell you about that, the A score is um, before COVID, and I used to do face-to-face trainings, I had people do this, the A score, because we, we, were, um, we had supports within, the, within that training environment. Um, and it is important that, yes, you get educated on, on what it means, but also that you're not putting yourself in a reactionary mode, that you make sure that you do have supports around you if you're concerned that oh my gosh, this is resonating with me. I have this ACE score. Now what do I do? So just be aware of that and and maybe learn a little bit about what the ACE uh, score is. Um, so so with with that said, the, the you can find it right online, um, finding your ACE score. So you have to Google it and all kinds of stuff will come up. Um, but what research has shown is that you have, if you have an ACE score, let's say of four or, uh, is it three or four or more, um, in your childhood, youth, children are 32 times more likely to have behavior problems in school. So think about that. Think about a child who is living in um, a home with domestic violence 
or dads in, incarcerated um, or moms incarcerated. So it's a one, single family home or if they were sexually abused or if they're living um, in a neglectful situation. So they have three or more and they're going to school Let's and sexual abuse, since I know that's what we're talking about here, and they're going to school, where do you think their mindset is? Their mindset is very, it's very difficult for a child to learn when they are dealing with their traumas in their home on a daily basis or on a routine basis, right? So when we look at kids who have an A score of three or more and they're 32 times more likely to have behavior problems in school, that's huge. That is absolutely huge. And this is this happens in our school system. So kids are acting out. And what happens when kids are acting out? They're labeled as ADHD. They're labeled as behavior problems. And they're labeled as this. And they're kicked out of school or suspended or something like that. So um, now I know with, with Orange County, for sure, a lot of the social workers and the mental health professionals are really looking a little deeper than why is this kid acting out? Is it really ADHD? It might not be. It might because the symptoms of um, ADHD, um, the acting out behaviors and the inability to focus and all of that mirrors um, what a traumatic child might be doing, might be behaving like. So which is great that we're, you know, we're talking about ACEs and what an ACE score could look like in a child. So it's critical that we look. So if we identify that early, we could really, really help and intervene on behalf of that child, get them the help that they need so that they can learn and they can then not end up in DJJ or not end up using drugs to try and cope. So there's a huge prevention effort that's going on right now. Um, and I think that's huge. Now for adults, there are so many adults who are still having physical and mental ailments and illnesses and your your life expectancy could be shorter because your physical um body is is harboring this and causing you to be sick. So that's why, you know, like Tracy is talking about and, and you know, we, we want to encourage um, intervention and people to get the assistance that they need. The last thing I want to say about the A score is you might have an A score. You might have an A score of 10, um, which is, of course, huge. But just because you have an A score, the risk factors, right, doesn't mean, of course, that you're going to have these issues. Because you might have, and I pray that people do, you might you might have risks, but you might have that that one person, that loving person in your life, that buffer in your life, that grandma, or you know that that mom and dad. Is, uh, two parent homes is decreases the risks, and that's research is showing that. So if you have that that buffer, you have that one person, you have school, which is is your safe place, you have. Um, you know, that sporting uh, event that you football or basketball or whatever that sporting event is, that is your, your safe place that can decrease a lot of the issues. Absolutely. And speaking of that safe place that you were mentioning, Anna, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Tracy. You know, you were talking about how when you first shared your story initially that maybe the reaction wasn't um, what I like to call like a reacting responsibly or in a supportive way. So I wanted to ask you, how can those that are listening react responsibly to someone disclosing a history of childhood sexual abuse and be that safe person for, for those in our lives? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question because I feel like a lot of times people, you know, um, if, 
if they have friends, they have close friends and, and people share their stories because it goes back to everybody has a story. Everybody has something that has happened to them, some traumatic experience in some way, um, whether it's a, it's a minor one or a, a huge one. We all have, we all have some, we have stories of things that have happened. Um, and I think, you know, I mentioned back to about talking about my husband and how he reacted is I, I think I just genuinely saw love there. And I think that's what you have to react with is, you know, you first tell the person it, this is not your fault and this doesn't define you, you know, let them know that this is something that happened to them and it doesn't have to be who they are for the rest of their lives. Like, and, and it happened and, and it's not their fault. And I think that's the biggest thing that a lot of victims of sexual abuse want to know is it wasn't your fault, you know, and, and we've talked about like the good touch and bad touch and it gets very confusing in your, and your brain on what was good and bad. And we just want to know that, you know, it doesn't make us a bad person. It doesn't make us damaged goods. It, it, it's okay. So if you're listening to somebody and they disclose to you, about their story, about their abuse, just, you know, listen to them, let them tell their story and believe them and trust in what they say and just tell them, I understand. And I'm, I'm very sorry. And I still love you. And I think that's the biggest thing that you can tell somebody who um, is disclosing their story to you. Thank you. Those are all really important points. I, I think a lot of times when I, when I do trainings, a, a big question is always like, what, what do I say? Um, so I think that that's really important information that you shared. So I appreciate that, Tracy. You know, speaking about, you know, resources out there and other safe places and what resources are out there for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Um, and also, if you could go into services that the Childhood Advocacy Center or the CAC provide victims, that would be great, too. Sure. So, of course, the Victims Service Center is phenomenal. Victims Service Center has a lot of services for um, for sexual abuse victims and, and counseling and therapy, which is phenomenal. Um, and it's uh, I believe it's more for adults, um, Emily, and maybe you can talk to a little bit more about that. But as far as the advocacy center goes, we have the Healing Tree, which is for children. The Healing Tree is phenomenal, and we focus um, specifically on children who have had trauma, physical or sexual abuse. It could be domestic violence. Um, and what's really cool about the advocacy center is that everything is is housed under one roof. So if a child has to come or it has been, uh, has physical sexual abuse, um, and they need to come in for an interview, like a forensic interview, our child protection team does that. And that is, um, uh, they're highly qualified forensic interviewers, um, kind of like you see on CSI, right? So they are, they're highly uh, trained on how to talk to children without asking leading questions. They are asking children, um, you know, trying to get to what happened without leading them to draw conclusions. And this is for um, law enforcement and for Department of Children and Family Purposes, because we want to supplement their investigation. But they, the child protection team case coordinators are the experts in the forensic interview viewing of children. And we also have our medical personnel on site as well in the event that there's a medical exam that's needed, et cetera, um, for children. But in the same, under the same roof at our advocacy center, which is so child-friendly and beautiful, uh, we have the healing tree. So the healing tree is right there. So that if the kids are coming to us, you know, they're coming to us for some 
pretty ugly reasons, right? But we want the environment to be um, trauma-friendly. So our environment is uh, welcoming and it's um, open and it's friendly and it's it's very kid-appropriate so that they know each time that they come back, it's a consistent atmosphere. So our healing tree, they are, the therapists there, they do trauma work. They are highly skilled in figuring out which is the best uh, approach to help the kids deal with their trauma and to get healing. Um, so for us, we are, the Healing Tree really are um, the experts within Central Florida in dealing with trauma for children, uh, especially sexual abuse, physical abuse, et cetera. The other thing that I want to make sure um, is, you know, if you're looking for therapy or looking for a counselor or a therapist for your for your child or for an adult, please make sure they are trauma-informed um, and that it's not, you know, you don't want to go to a marriage and family counselor, which are great for marriage and uh, family issues, but this is a whole different issue. So you want to make sure that it's someone who is trained in how to deal with children with trauma. The other thing that I want to make sure that people understand too is that it is a family affair. The trauma happened to the child, but the entire family is affected by this trauma. So we want, and the healing tree does in fact require that the caregivers do um, participate in therapy. Because imagine if you are a, a child is going to therapy, trying to deal with, uh, trying to learn or learning new coping mechanisms. Um, but if they act in a certain way at home and the parent doesn't know how to deal with that particular behavior or what's going on with the child, it's it's not helping, right? So the whole family, the, the caregiver needs to be included in that therapy to make sure that that child is truly healing in all areas. Those are all great resources, and thanks for breaking down um, the resources over at the CAC, and I appreciate you bringing up um, trauma-informed. I think, yes, it's it's very important to highlight that there are professionals that are specifically trained in trauma. It's a different thing, um, and that really is a helpful resource. And going back to, you know, the Victim Service Center, you're right, and we do work with adults, so anyone 12 and up can receive our free services. Um, a lot of our survivors that we work with are survivors that are adults that have experienced childhood sexual abuse. So it's always important to highlight that um, whoever's looking for services at the Victim Service Center, it doesn't matter when the trauma occurred. Um, we do focus on trauma, but a lot of the times survivors that come to us may have experienced it a long time ago. Maybe they're experiencing it still now. That's okay. You can reach out to the VSA. We're always here for you. That being said, and what would you say to a survivor who may feel overwhelmed about seeking services and is not sure even where to start? That's a great question. So if you're not even sure where to start, you can call the Advocacy Center, you can call the Victim Service Center and, you know, get guidance as to where to start because it is overwhelming. It's like, okay, this makes sense. I really want to talk about it. I really want to, um, you know, at least talk to someone who might understand. It's just really picking up that phone call. And I know the Victim Service Center has a, or I believe the Victim Service Center has a, um, a hotline number. That's right. It's 24-7-407-500-HEAL-H-E-A-L. So always happy to I'll put that out there anytime I can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's wonderful that you have that hotline there. You um, you can call 211 and ask for resources as well, which is a um, another great resource to use. But if you want to get a live person 
The number that um, Emily just gave you, that, that is a, a great resource. You can also, again, go to our, um, our website, or which is caccentral.com, um, to see what the Advocacy Center is all about. Um, but if I, I encourage you, if nothing else, pick up that phone and call that number that Emily just said, because that's, that's immediately in your, um, on your phone. So you can go ahead and do that, and they can lead you to the right direction. Absolutely. All great points. Um, and kind of like on our, in our final questions here, you know, Tracy, I wanted to ask you first off, um, you talked a lot about your healing journey and kind of what helped. So I didn't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Um, and if you'd like to tell anything to survivors who may be listening um, and what you want people to take away from your story. Yeah, so I I think uh, the biggest thing is to try and talk to somebody, you know, um, find, you know, you want to, you, you may not be able to tell uh, your close friends or, and things like that, that that is what has happened to you and about things like that. So like we've said, either the Child Advocacy or the Victim Service Center are great places because nobody's judging you and, and they're there just for you. So those are all like um, um, great places that I think that people should um, should try first, because I know when I wanted to get healed, I called a therapist, um, but a lot of people don't aren't even know what sure how to go about that. So I think that's a good place that you guys have these advocacy centers set up. Um, and I wish they were they were there when I needed them um, as, a, as a as a kid and, and then even going through it as an adult. So that's one thing I'll, I'll say. Um, one thing I will say for those survivors, uh, I think, you know, you go through the process of healing and you tell your story and you're getting the, the help you need and you've talked about things and then you're like, okay, I think I'm okay right now. Um, I think you always need to be aware. And this is something that I have to learn as I go on is your triggers. Like there are certain triggers that I didn't know that existed um, until they happened. And, and so I think you have to figure out what your certain triggers are. Like there are certain, um, movies that I cannot watch because it'll trigger, you know, thoughts or emotions or feelings that'll just bring everything up and, and it'll, it'll just kind of happen and it takes a while to get over it. And I, so I think as people who go through trauma and have these experiences, you're going to have triggers of things that are going to set you off. There's going to be places that you might go that are going to be a trigger or smells or certain foods or, you know, it, it's, it could be all kinds of random things. Um, but to know your triggers is kind of one thing or to just be aware that you might have a trigger. Um, you may not have find it out just yet. And you might, you know, like in a year or two, something come up and you'll be like, oh my gosh, that's a trigger for me. So just kind of going with that. And then the last thing I would just say to people who have experienced, uh, you know, sexual abuse and trying to get over a trauma is just be patient. Like it's not a, you're going to fix it all in one day. I could think you have to take your time with this and really, go at your own pace. Some people go at a very fast pace and can get through this and get on the other end and then start living their life. And some people it takes years and it, and, and it's going to be a long process. So whatever your process is, whatever you are, there's no definition of what you're supposed to do. Just go at your own pace, do what you feel 
is good for you and, and just make sure that it's, it's healthy. Um, so if you need to take more time to digest everything and process things, then take your time and, and enjoy, you know, and just know that your, your story's not over and it's going to continue and to just kind of be patient with what's coming at you. I just want to take the opportunity to thank you once again, Tracy, for just being so open and um, vulnerable with us and sharing your experience. I think this is really powerful for survivors to hear. Um, and I'm really excited for people to listen to this particular podcast. And you want to jump in? Yeah. Well, the final thing that I want to say is to really encourage people who have suspicions um, of sexual abuse is to report it. Um, to report it to the Department of Children and Families, of course, if it's a youth, and that's 1-800-96-ABUSE, or you can go to the DCF website. And the reason I highly encourage that, one, of course, is um, to hold that person accountable if, in fact, it did happen, to get an investigation in there to um, ensure that that child is safe. Um, but also, if it is happening to one child, it might be happening to another child, and we want to stop that from happening. So what happens um, oftentimes is that people are aware that something might be happening and they might distance that, that child from that perpetrator, which is great because you want to have that protection piece. But without reporting it, you are still allowing that perpetrator to perp on other kids. Um, so and sometimes the family doesn't even want to talk about it. OK, this happened. He'll, you'll never have to see him again. I promise. Protect the child. That is the utmost importance, but without reporting and without, um, you know, if it goes through prosecution and the person is found guilty, if we don't do that and hold people accountable, they'll just continue to perp on other children. And we want to protect all children. So I really want to encourage people to make sure that they are calling in um, to report that abuse to um, DCF hotline. Of course, if it is a, a youth, call law enforcement, whatever it is you need to do to get that guidance. Um, because it is critical that we are stopping these perpetrators from perping on anyone. Absolutely. And that kind of leads to my just final question here, you know, um, you know, what can we do to help support survivors of childhood sexual abuse? And I think that you brought that up and, but just wanted to give, you know, a platform for anything else you'd like to add that we may have not covered as well, just as we have a final wrap up here. I think for me, and, and um, Tracy really said it so well, and I want to emphasize it, is, you know, if somebody does disclose, listen, be present. Um, you know, it, it's not your fault. Um, you're not alone in this. This this has happened to other people. This is not something that you are alone in, and we can get you help. I will be here for you. Um, and a lot of times I, I tell people to fix your face, you know, and not have that astonished face. It's like, oh, my gosh, or, oh, I'm going to kill somebody, or, oh, my God, you know, that, that kind of overreaction, because that could really shut down a child um, if you react in that overdramatic way because they feel like, oh, they've said something they shouldn't have said. So um, reacting responsibly, Emily, is what you said. And and Tracy, you also said, you know, making sure people feel that they're not alone and it is absolutely not their fault. So um, Tracy, again, I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story. It just totally reiterates everything in training that we try and do at the CAC. And I know, Emily, you do the same thing. But it is different to hear the impact and the 
um, the powerful message, Tracy, that you are sharing, it just totally goes hand in hand with training. So I'm so happy that you are able to share your story and and help other people. Well, thank you, Anne. That's very sweet. I appreciate it. Like I said, I share my story to help others um, and and help myself, basically, because the more I talk about it, um, I kind of, you know, it gives me a little bit more power over what has happened to me. So I feel a little bit more empowered in my story um, and, and the way that I'm dealing with it. Um, so I can kind of, you feel that a little bit more control over the situation that you had no control over. So thank you so much for saying that. That was very sweet of you. I think that that's a wonderful place to kind of wrap up. Um, so I want to thank the listener for listening to the Victim Service Center podcast. The VSC is a nonprofit organization that provides free confidential counseling services for victims of any kind of trauma in Central Florida. To learn more about our services, please visit victimservicecenter.org. And to everyone listening, healing is not linear and you are not alone. And I just want to thank you once again, Tracy and Anne, for being here today with me. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Emily. Absolutely, Emily. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy.